Hi, everyone. It's your podcast host, Jim Andrews, here with a reminder that the Ticket Manager Partner Summit is back. We'll be getting together in person on October 17th this year at the Times Center in New York City. This is a free, invitation-only event where hundreds of business leaders across the world's most influential brands in sports, sponsorship, live events, and ticketing gather to make great connections and share valuable information. Approved attendees enjoy exclusive networking events, insightful panels, and exciting celebrity speakers, all for free. Are you interested in attending? Just go to ticketmanager.com for details on how to apply. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Ticket Manager All Access Interview Series. I'm your host, Jim Andrews. As we wrap up our second year of the podcast and mark the close of 2022, we thought it would be a good time to take a look at some of the highlights from the interviews we conducted this past year. As always, it was a challenge to choose just a few of the insights that were shared by our many thought leader guests representing brands, properties, and agencies across the sports marketing sector. Our first set of clips really set the tone with fresh perspectives of where we are as an industry from three people who are helping to lead us into the future. For the early part of my and your career, sports were an amazing ecosystem that was kind of just to the left or just to the right of center in the marketing mix for brands. It would start with the prime time and the Seinfeld and Friends and whatever the shows may be that they would buy on television. Well, that paradigm has shifted completely where sports is no longer a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. It is at the very center of the media and entertainment space. It is the programming. It is the content that wins the day. Right. That's just different. Right. And if you rewind 20 years, which you and I can both do, that was (laughs) not the case. The numbers may have been different on the in the aggregate, but the composite of where sports lands within the entertainment and media space was just different. Now it's square in the middle, in the center, in the bullseye of what brands are looking to affiliate with and what fans are tuning into, right? So the the world of, of consumption of content has changed and sports is now in the center of that wheel. And, and, and that's a tremendous opportunity for all of us and responsibility for all of us who work in this in this space. So we've got to find a way to create immediacy and engage people despite what's happening on the field of play. And there are times where it is the most enthralling experience one could have watching a baseball game or or a football game. There are times where the ball goes back and forth and back and forth and and nothing material happens and you've got people who are th- who are craving that immediacy. And so in my mind the 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 not only the gamification but but the entertainment value in sport has to evolve and we've got to create ways to engage our fans beyond just what's happening on the field because it 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 no longer is enough in some cases and so we've got to create the right balance we have you know what I'll call fans like myself who who are who who love and are purists of sports 
But you've got to juxtapose that with an entire new generation who may not have grown up baseball fans or football fans or basketball fans or hockey fans or whatever. But that doesn't mean you can't have an amazing experience at a hockey game, whether or not you grew up a hockey fan. If we build the game to entertain and build the experience around the game to ensure that people remain entertained. And I think we got to think about ourselves as entertainment companies more and less about you know, a basketball team or a football team. You know, the world that we lived in was create the 30-second spot and they will come. I, I, I think while there is certainly, and, you know, I, I believe this will always be a role for the 30-second spot as part of an effort, I think now it's more about, you know, doing things and showing up in places that are relevant to, a, a you know, a, a consumer's own beliefs and values and, and passions. So I think now our job is, to go find our consumers or our customers where they are, as opposed to expecting or waiting for them to come to us. And, and, and I think that also, and, and we think about this a lot from a, you know, sort of that marriage of art and science, as I described, is thinking about consumers and customers as, as multi-hyphenates. You know, like we're, none of us are one thing, you know? Um, so, you know, in the sports, if we're thinking about this from a sports perspective, you know, People may be sports fans. I'm a sports fan. I've you know, been in this business or partly in this business for a long time. But sports isn't the only thing that defines me. You know, I, I like to eat. You know, I like music. I, you know, on a good day, like fashion. You know, there's, there's other, other things that, you know, define me. So I think the mistake that we sometimes make is we try to segment audiences and think about them in a sort of monolithic way, as opposed to thinking about, you know, who we're trying to attract on a on a more, I don't know, horizontal basis, if you will, you know, sort of cutting across and, and it all relates to culture. Like I, you know, to, in my view, the culture is the new creative in a lot of ways, you know, culture is what drives, you know, people's interests, their passions, and ultimately their pocketbooks. We, um, in this industry, sometimes interchangeably use the word sponsor and partner. And, and, and I think it's really a distinction that matters to me, at least sponsorship suggests, you know, a transactional relationship, you know? Somebody's going to write a check. Somebody else is going to deliver them assets or, you know, logos or some, some value in return versus, you know, partners, which is how do we marry our businesses together? And, you know, if I'm writing you, you know, Ms. or Mr. Property, a check, how can you truly work with me to be able to showcase my business, my brand, you know, my technology, whatever I have to offer in ways that uh, allow us to show up in, in like genuine and real ways, because to me, the, the sponsor shows up and sometimes the audience says, why are you in my way? You know, you're, 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 you're creating friction in my experience as opposed to a partner, which makes it better, you know, makes the experience better, creates a reason why, you know, the, the viewer, the audience, the consumer wants them to be there and understands why they're there. So I, I think properties need to think about it through that lens. And you know, as a business, we deal, I think, with every property on, on the planet, almost, uh, maybe exaggerated only slightly. And we actually, as part of Endeavor, own UFC, we own PBR, you know, tennis tournaments, golf tournaments, fashion shows. So I think we've got a balanced perspective on it. And it really is, I think, through that lens of, you know, help me really make my business better. And, and you know, I, I will be your partner for a long time when that is the case. Next, four of the leading brand partners who joined the podcast this year share enlightening takes on how they plan, set strategy, and evaluate success, as well as what their partners can help them with. We place value on branding, but we're not going to spend just for the sake of branding. 
So I had to come up with something that would would make the the investment in the golf an offset, and that's where the security summit came in. That that whole technology summit, and I, and we I I kind of looked at it and said if if I can pull this off. So the way I was able to sell this to them, uh, to the to the executives, and ultimately had to pitch this to the board of directors was if we can get $300 million of pipeline to show up, not net new pipeline. We knew we would generate net new pipeline. Uh, we knew the branding would have an impact. We knew the commercials that we got. The, there were a lot of assets you receive as a title market, title um, uh, sponsor. So the commercials definitely would have an impact. The social media would have an impact. All the naming rights, all of that stuff would have an impact. But a lot of that is clicks and uh, we call um, uh uh, whatever the, it's a marketing term. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not the world's greatest marketing person. <laughs> uh, impressions. There we go. Clicks, oh, yeah, impressions, sure, all that sure. stuff. That to, that's about a bit of a soft math for us. It's about hard math. So right. if we could, if we could get 300 million in pipeline to show up and if we could take our normal close rate, we normally close right around 33% of our pipeline. If okay. those people that show up, if we can increase that from 33 to 39%, just a six, 6%. So like, what is that? A 20% increase? 6% more on 33, that would generate 6% of 300 million would generate 18 million in extra revenue that we weren't going to generate previously. And if we average about 60% profit margin on that, that's 10.8 million that pays for the golf tournament. So I sort of made a deal with them saying, I will buy the golf tournament by way of throwing this technology seminar event summit and, and one will pay for the other. And that's how we really got it through. I think I know for a fact, if I'd have walked in there and said, Hey, I need $10 million to, to have our tournament and stopped right there, they, they probably been laughed out of the room. We had 330 people showed up last year. And of that 600 million in pipeline showed up. So what does that mean? It was double my projection. So instead of having to close an extra 6%, we only had to close an extra 3% to get to that 18 million slash 10.8. So, so I could guess you'd say year one was, was a raging success for the Fortnite championship. I think when that happened, that's really when there was this aha moment um, out there of wow, this is this is where we need to be as a company. We're we're ten thousand employees now. We're knocking on the door of five billion dollars. This is this is what we need to be doing. That's the interesting part of of the mentality I brought from sales, where everything's very very finite, right? Like a dollar of, of revenue is a dollar revenue. You know, a dollar of pipeline is a dollar of pipeline. I come over to marketing, like I said, and you've got to, I call it the Ford of Snuggie of of um, metrics you know you've got impressions and clicks and view rates and all these things but how, how do you really so i focus and i have my team now 100 focus on pipeline right that's that's what we can generate in in, in uh, marketing is pipeline ultimately pipeline will result in sales so the you know but we're at the front end of the train trying to get as much pipeline on as possible and at the back end you know they're trying to turn that into revenue contrary to maybe some how some brands may follow their sponsorship frameworks we have not focused our partnerships on a few themes or sports. Uh, that's really driven by our community bank model that takes the decisioning closer to the region and closer to the community that we serve. And so what we've found to have a unifying theme is this idea of us participating in community rituals and whatever they may be. And therefore, as a result, our portfolio may be, you know, a little bit more diverse than you may uh, traditionally look to, to generate. While sponsorships can and should impact the entire sales funnel, we find the most powerful impact for us 
is kind of the top to the mid section. So again, if you look at it within the marketing mix model, for us, sponsorships afford us a really powerful, impactful, experiential marketing campaign and, and tool. And so as a matter of sponsorships, the way we approach sponsorships, we, we see a sponsorship to be a discussion between the property rights holder and its naturally attracted audience. And we want to join that discussion. And we want to join it uh, uh, authentically being a bank. So we're not ESPN, for example. So we would never speak to you know, a play call or a draft choice. Uh, and being authentic to our bank, we also want to make sure that we add value to that conversation. And so when I say conversation, it's interpreted in its broadest sense. So it's the nature of the engagement between those two parties, right? So the Ravens, for example, have their Ravens flock and they engage in multiple ways, so digitally or at game day uh, and in a variety of ways. And how do we participate in those engagements by adding value and by being true to ourselves? It's the fundamentals, right? It's, it's what I talked about with respect to how do you make sure you run an effective loyalty program? So know your customers and what their expectations are. So what are you really trying to do with your promotional programs? I think working with the loyalty programs, sports and entertainment sponsors, they really need, and, and the, the, the companies that support them, you know, you really need to make sure that there's a basic alignment of audiences and the business's objectives. And if you can sit down and sort of get in, you know, get, get in front of the whiteboard and make sure that you're super clear. It's like, who are we talking about from an audience perspective and exactly what are we trying to achieve? It's also important to think about as much fun and, and is as great as a, as a good promotional experience can be. I have 8 million members and we have to think about them, not just for what's that big event that's coming up that we're going to have people go to or series of events, of course, that we have people to go to. So we think long-term, I mean, promotional things are amazing, but we need to do it in a way that fits in sort of with a longer-term experience and it's not just kind of a, a one-and-done thing. I think at the, to the extent that the, the promotional partners can think about where are the gaps and shortcomings that we have in our program, and we're very open and understand what they are, or hope we understand what they are, the ways that they can fill those gaps with, you know, showing our members, every rewards program wants to share more ways for people to earn, more ways for them to redeem, more ways to get status and recognition, you know, access to everyday entertainment. Those are the things, the last one, particularly for an entertainment program, obviously, those are the things that if we can do that with a partner where it makes sense for them and makes sense for us, I mean... We, we, we do that all day long. Really, again, goes back to what are we trying to do? And not all spend is created equal and not all spending equates to an ROI, like a direct bottom line. Right. So for instance, if we're, if we're doing more of a, an awareness, we want to get more share of voice, higher awareness in the markets. We're going to look more at you know, the brand tracker and, and look at, hey, have we seen an awareness, you know, increase over a period of time? So it's a longer game, right. uh, you know, and then you've got as you move down, I really love a full funnel partnership, something that drives from the top and not it's it's not every partnership or sponsorship is going to do this, but I love it when they when they can. But, you know, so looking at the the awareness would be an increase 
of awareness within the specific markets over a longer period of time. As you move further down, you know, maybe if it's a partnership with an event and we're doing a prospect and client uh, lead generation, or if it's, you know, a concert or maybe a sponsorship, uh, a sports, a sports uh, event, if we're inviting people in, what's happening with those in a more lead, lead generation prospect driving, that's going to be like, hey, were we able to drive more in? Were we able to provide that air cover and help to fill the funnel for the banker? And then are any of those leads converting? And so there's just so many different levels of measurement within these types of um, events and partnerships that it really varies but there's a lot you can do and there is a way to show. So we, we also did a partnership with a, uh, an event for one of our commercial groups. And we were able to measure who was invited, who, you know, what happened within the deal, within the, within the funnel, and then who converted. And we, you can equate two of the, two of the closed loans more than pay for what we paid for for the event. And so I really encourage the team to adopt that model or not encourage that's the model we're utilizing is you know what is the what is the payoff and then how do we go above and beyond. For me as a marketer and and as a leader in marketing, I find it critical that marketing become more of more driving to the bottom line, more of a less of a, a, a cost and and more of a revenue contributor and i think it's it's not as hard as people think to develop that muscle within your organization and that also helps to to get the the buy in from your business leaders into doing some of the events and sponsorships i think it's getting that roi and just making sure the measurement piece is in place for whatever your objective is with the measurement or with the sponsorship is is critical picking up on the performance measurement conversation the former head of global sponsorship for coca-cola and visa offered some sage advice for brands this is uh, one of the areas that is most demanded by senior managers so the ceos the cfos when they engage in conversations about sponsorships, usually they are not paying a lot of attention in the awareness that you build or the number of tickets that you get. What they really care about is why I should spend all this money, and usually is a lot of money, to do this instead of all the other things that I can do from an investment standpoint. Today, some of the sponsorships that large brands are dealing with, they are as expensive as acquiring a new company, as launching a business in a new country, or you know, investing in equipment. So uh, sponsorship managers are competing with all these other choices that management have in front of them. And unless you do a very good job in explaining why that investment in sponsorship is better than all the other alternatives, chances are the investments in sponsorships are going to go down over time. So I was lucky enough to work for companies that have uh, an abundance of uh, data. And that is a very good starting point for developing any models for, for measurement. 
It is not a, a must-have, but it's uh, it, it certainly makes things easier if you have uh, a lot of data available. So a history of sponsorships, a history of performance of different countries in different markets during periods of activation versus periods of non-activation, all of that help the brands to figure out what's the exact impact of the investments. So, but even if you don't have all this information, it's possible to develop models that with a certain level of certainty gives an indication of the potential impact of the sponsorships. What I see today, even with large brands, is that they are very focused, as you mentioned, on the top of the pyramid. So when you see reporting from after events, you see a lot of these brands talking about being the most remembered brand, the most associated brand with the event. When the reality is all of that, these are all vanity measures. So sponsorship managers can brag in the sponsorship press about being the most associated, but the reality is that it's irrelevant. What I, I, I encourage people to try to get to is because of that sponsorship, the attribution of this sponsorship to the business results were X. And I, I've seen examples, I developed models for Visa and for Coke where we got to a point where we could say, you know, by country, by you know, uh, volume of sales, by revenue, by profit, all of that was you know, a result of that specific sponsorship. And that gave a lot of confidence for senior management to, to make decisions or for me to recommend not doing something. If you invest 100, 10 or 1, you can still adapt your own way of measuring your own model to to your to your reality, and I don't I don't think the level of investment is a, is an excuse to do it uh, one way or the other. The the thing that prevents sponsorship people to spend time and energy in doing this is you now there are a few things. So it is very hard. So it it's not a, a natural an area of comfort for most people that grow up working in sponsorships. You know, activation and promotion and event management is is more fun. It's easier. It's more natural to do than sitting down with you know data science and and you know measurement companies to to think about that. But it's I think it's as necessary, if not more necessary than than ever to to do it. Uh, so don't I my I encourage you know the the people that are listening to us don't don't get distracted by your investment level. Because even a okay model is better than no model at all. So uh, if you if you want to leave a, a legacy you know, of your you know, of, of it, at your job when you when you move to the next big one, you know measurement is probably one of the most important things you can do. Looking at the property perspective, we had some of the most successful sponsorship revenue generators join us this year. Here are three who discussed what's necessary to be a good partner, as well as how to meet the challenge of building a successful sales team today. We recently announced an extension with Herbalife, who has been the only partner of the LA Galaxy on our chest and, and one of the biggest and best in the MLS again, dating back to 2007. It was really critical for us, Jim, to not take that to market because we have had such success activating that partnership. And that longevity means a lot to us. Many of these partnerships in the case of Herbalife, you know, digital marketing, right? Well, that's an aspect. If you look back when we started in 2007, uh, you know, a, a social media strategy was not contemplated. And now, you know, to have a, 
a strategy in the digital space that is anything longer than six months is is probably archaic. So for us, having you know a, a real sense of of relationship and partnership with an organization is critical as you create flexibility throughout the duration of a partnership to pivot to what matters to you at a particular time or to the client at a particular time. And so as we looked at this extension or look at any extension, it's about the people that we're doing the business with and making sure that we're incorporating a lot of the things that we added into the partnership. So a lot of the integration of their product, so to speak, was not contractually committed to. It was something that we authentically wanted to have happen. We knew it was good for the the, the brand, but it also was something that we believed in. Now, that becomes a contractual component. So you, you catch up to the times a little bit, Jim, and then you also realize, let's keep some open space here for what's going to develop into the future so that we can you know, be creative together. We've got to be a bit more thoughtful and flexible about how we recruit and retain talent. I think people have recognized the importance of home and the importance of family and community in a way that they never have before. And, and me as a sales executive and looking to recruit sales executives and, and, and others, frankly, you know, have to think about, do we forego the best talent in the world because they are uncomfortable with a relocation to a new city? And that's not to minimize any city versus another. I think teams in New York and teams in LA and teams in between are experiencing some of the same challenges where people are saying, I get it's LA, but but my life is here. My my kids are here. My spouse is here and uprooting that to go take a job in a desirable city or less desirable city isn't really applicable. So we as an industry have to really think about, so we just forego the best talent because of those rigid constraints that we put on a business for the last, you know, however long, versus what the evolution of that can be. And, and, you know, is there a world where, you know, you can sell sponsorship, you know, for a team and and not necessarily live in that market. Now, I wouldn't say that you need to know about that market. You got to be willing to travel. You got to be willing to be there. But I think we've got to think about what is an alternative approach. And I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's a hard swing and, you know, no one lives in, in the city that the team sure. resides. I mean, that's disingenuine. And I think in the best case scenario, you want your people to be in market because I think they get a flavor and a feel for what it's like. But I don't know that we do that um, and shortchange the, the level of talent we're able to, to uh, acquire either. And I think we as sports leaders have to be willing to think outside of the box. And the only way to know how to go find and mine and present a game experience that attracts a diverse fan base is to actually have members of that fan base within your organization. You know, I, no one can, you know, sort of tell me what it's like to be me other than me. And so the more that we can diversify a room in, in a, in a, and thought around any initiative that's marketing, that's community relations, that's how we sell, that's how we pitch our social platforms and how we present ourselves to the community, the more inclined we will be to, to attract in more diverse talent. Um, and I just think we've, we've, we haven't historically done a good job of that. And as you know, people tend to hire and, and work alongside people that they're most comfortable 
doing so. And the people you're most comfortable doing so are people who are like you, who come from where you come from, think like you think, potentially look like you, have played similar sports to you, have the same, you know, thoughts about life that you do. And and that I think had had served its purpose for a time, but I do think we've got to to stretch ourselves. And you know, I often say that if you aren't uncomfortable at some point in your day because you're around near talking with, speaking to, um, you know, breaking bread with somebody who isn't like you and is forcing you to stretch your thinking, you aren't part of the solution. You're part of the problem. We've got to be willing to put ourselves out there. We've got to be willing to hear some uncomfortable things. We've got to be willing to have somebody in the room who might disagree with you and might disagree wholeheartedly with the approach that you're taking because they have a sensibility that's different than yours. I don't want a bunch of individuals, a bunch of lone wolves, so to speak, on our sales team. I want people that get just as excited about another sale um, that somebody made than they do about their own. And that's one thing the staff that I have currently here in Dallas it's probably, there's probably as good of that at that as any group I've ever seen. Okay? Their level of excitement just is through the roof when anyone makes a sale. And to take it a step further, that's also the, the service team. The service team gets excited for the sales group, which that hasn't always been the case in places I've been either. And don't get me wrong, you're going to miss. But sure. I think one of the, the things that's important is correcting your mistake. You know, you can't just make somebody a good person. You can't make them a good teammate. If that's not within them, I just don't know that it's something you can create. And so not that we've had to do it very often, but when we have had that person that doesn't fit because they're not a great teammate or in, in fact, not a great person, you know, I, I think we try to act quickly there to take that out of that person out of our culture. It's just not something that we can, uh, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. It's not that our, our leadership team gives up early. It's just sure. um, we'll we'll do what we can to get them to where we need them to be. And if they can't get there, then, you know, we're not afraid to make a change. And I think some people just in industry in general don't like to have those uncomfortable conversations and don't like to make those changes. And we just won't risk our culture for anything. And our sales team, because they're good people, they pay a lot of attention to the service team. I think they do things for them. And, and Jim, it might be something simple like texting them on the way in and say, hey, I'm stopping at Starbucks. Would you like a coffee? It's amazing at some of the small things, how far they'll go with that. I mean, that's in general in life. But I think with this group, it's something that, that really goes a long way. And then when we do any sales competition, I'm talking, it doesn't matter if it's a, a longer one that's for a, a full campaign or if it's just a weekly thing or a daily thing. We always include the service team. When we do our reward trips, every year we do a reward trip. If we hit our goal, we'll take our team, you know, somewhere that that they'll be excited to go. And we the service team automatically qualifies for that trip as long as we hit the goal. So as soon as the team hits the goal, they're in. And then the salespeople have to hit their individual goals to also go. But if we do any kind of prizes, we also have prizes for our service team. And that has been since literally since day one. And look, when I was when I was younger, we didn't always have the budget to do that. Fortunately, here, you know, I'm provided the resources to do this and do it the right way. But 
again, it's because from top down, they believe that that's important to engage everybody on the team, you know, even down to our ticket ops group, which, you know, unfortunately those, that group is so critical to our mission, but a lot of times they're forgotten about. We just did a road trip with our suite holders and took our whole ticket office out to Kansas city for the weekend. And so they got treated to, to, you know, being in a pregame tailgate and going on a, a charter plane and things that, you know, maybe they wouldn't have the opportunity to do. And we do that each and every year with that group. And so it's just, it allows them to see that, man, hitting these goals is so important. And not only are we sitting here watching the salespeople celebrate, we're celebrating right along with them. And so I, I would, you know, encourage anybody, no matter what you're doing, even if there's not a lot or nothing even to qualify, you know, if it's a drawing for a prize and a sales rep gets the draw for a prize, nine times out of 10, the service rep also draws for, draws for a prize. Right. Because we, and we don't give them, it's not like the salesperson gets a hundred dollar gift card and the service person gets a dollar, you know, Starbucks card. It's their equivalent. Like we try to make sure that that happens. We just, we know how important it is. And because of that, you'll see the sales reps and the service reps interacting, helping the service team will will call a sales rep up and say, "Hey, by the way, I just spoke to to Jim, and you know he he mentioned that he needed two more seats for a couple of games. So I asked him about adding a couple of seats for the whole season, and he wants to talk to you about it. Like they are actually helping bring leads and and deals to the table. This year saw plenty of difficulties thrown at rights holders and brand partners, from challenging global event locations to controversies involving both properties and companies. Two of our guests weighed in on the best way for marketers to respond. Brands for so long were able to sit on the sidelines and sort of identify which way the wind was blowing and, and tepidly maybe take a position on, you know, societal or cultural issues. Right? Brands no longer have that luxury. And I think one of the biggest challenges that many brands have, big brands, small brands, consumer brands, B2B brands, whatever it might be, of, of really aligning their values in ways that are uh, consistent and, and appropriate with the consumers which, you know, which they're trying to reach. Because I know in all the research that we do at this point, so many consumers, especially as you think about millennials and Gen Z, are, are, are voting with their wallet. You know, the, they, are, they are looking to ensure that the brands with which they interact and spend money on are aligned with their views and their personal preferences and you know how they feel about particular issues. So I think one of the biggest challenges facing brands today is making sure that they are really being purposeful in terms of how they're stepping out into the world and that they're they're genuine and authentic and real in how they're doing that. And there are two pieces of advice that I always give my clients. First of all, when you come to the table to negotiate for a partnership, you be the most prepared person sitting at that table know exactly what you're up against, know exactly what's going to happen, understand every single angle and be prepared for it. Nothing, no matter how crazy this industry can get, nothing beats good preparation. And then the second piece of advice I ripped straight from my 16-year-old son, which is at the end of the day, you do you. You do you. Where people get in trouble, where brands get in trouble is not the brands that own who they are authentically. If you are that authentically invested in something and you do you really well with a laser focus, everything else falls in line. Everything. 
So it's where brands get afoul of that is when they step outside of lines. If I'm not a particularly political brand, but I choose to take a, a stance politically, that's going to bite me. If I'm not a brand who's ever had a strong history in supporting women and I decide to launch something on International Women's Day with nothing behind it, that's going to bite me. As we look ahead to the new year, there is no doubt that technology and data will continue to play an even bigger role in taking sports partnerships to new heights. As our final highlight clip deftly summarizes what marketers can and should do to ensure success. The sheer most important thing that we can do as an industry is our ability to understand our consumer. And that doesn't mean you know Mika Morris has four season tickets to the Minnesota Twins. It means that you know that I am a Black woman, you know how old I am, you know where I live, you know that I'm married, you know that I have kids, you know that you know I give you know 50% of my tickets away to my neighbor who comes and who she is and, and how she comes to games, that you know that I love Chardonnay or I love to eat popcorn or I always buy you know, a hot dog in the first inning and a hamburger in the second, whatever the case may be, that data is vital, not only to attracting more people to the ballpark and getting me to come more often, but but getting me to spend more while I'm there. You know, how can you encourage me with special offers if you don't know anything about my consumer behavior? If I drink Chardonnay and you send me an offer for beer, that's not going to encourage me the way it might encourage my husband who loves beer, but maybe I don't. So I think the the smarter we can get about our fan base, the more we're going to drive from a revenue perspective. And that is not aggregated later through survey that's real-time data captured in the moment live that you can use to deliver customized consumer experiences while people are in the ballpark. And those going touchless and cashless and enforcing the use of you know mobile wallets, which is real-time data that you can see um, about your customers, but, but how you use that and manipulate that data for the benefit of the property is really where the gap is. And I think there's some people doing it well. I think there are far and few in between. I think most have data and think they've checked the proverbial box, but they haven't really aggregated and maximized that data in a meaningful way to drive incremental value to their business. We are down a path to, to do more. We do share as much as we can, but I think there's an opportunity for, for us to get you know better you know, in, in terms of the data we have and how we aggregate it. And, and then on the back end of that, how we share that with our partners. I mean, we we have historically, you know, over-indexed on satisfaction from our partners. We have long, long, long-standing partners that have the best things to say about the relationship with the twins. And so in my mind, I ultimately think if we can un, if we can crack the code on the on the data piece and the ability to share that data with the partners, it will only increase that feeling that folks have about us today. And so we are well underway uh, of creating a plan and, and developing a strategy to help do some of that. I hope that you enjoyed those highlights and that you will join us for more great podcast interviews in the coming year. From everyone at Ticket Manager, thank you so much for watching and listening.